This episode of My Financial Life is sponsored by the Vancouver Sun. 108 years as Vancouver's trusted voice. The Vancouver Sun is part of the Post Media Network, one of Canada's largest print and digital news networks. From Alumni UBC, this is My Financial Life, a podcast mini-series about personal finance. On this episode, host Mark Ting, partner with Foundation Wealth, speaks to UBC alumna Miley Wong, Senior Portfolio Manager and Executive Vice President at Wellington Altus Private Wealth, who offers financial tips for achieving early retirement. So nice to see you, Mark. Thanks for having me here. Uh, my name is Miley Wong. I'm a Senior Portfolio Manager and Executive Vice President at Wellington Altus Private Wealth. And I help manage uh, clients' uh, finances, wealth management portfolios, investments, and financial plan. Ultimately, so they can achieve their goals, which mm-hmm. often includes getting to a place where they no longer have to work for a living. And I call it the work optional life. Work optional life. That sounds good. Sign me up. <laughs> so you also wrote a book. Yes. Right. So I've read your book, so I feel like I know you a little bit. And what's the name of the title of the book? Uh, The book is Smart Risk, Invest Like the Wealthy to Achieve a Work Optional Life. Work Optional Life. So that seems to be the theme. That's the ultimate goal. So I know all about, I see it all the time, I know all about bad risks. So why don't Mm -hmm. you tell me a little bit about good risks and how do we go about um, distinguishing between the two? Well, I would say that good risks are ones that if you repeat taking those types of risks, eventually stack the odds in your favor and lead to better outcomes. Bad risks are those that uh, we take without much thought um, and that actually if you were to repeat those types of risks over and over, you would actually be getting more and more often bad outcomes. So, yeah, sounds you know. like sounds like there's emotions involved, right? So often bad risks or bad decision-making often deals with emotional emotional decisions, which are often seat of your pants, and uh, they often do not work. Whereas good risks, am I right in thinking they're more thought out, there's a plan, strategy behind them? That's absolutely right. Can you give us an example? So, you know, in everyday life, I like to think of examples where we come across decisions that are sometimes difficult decisions. Um, You know, whether it's what kind of career you want to have, you know, what kind of um, decision you want to make about buying or selling a house. And oftentimes it's very emotional. Mm -hmm. You know, I've come across uh, friends, family, when they're making a big decision financially, it's often clouded by emotion and fear. Right. And they're oftentimes taking a risk without even knowing it by holding off on actually making a decision. Yeah. Analysis by paralysis. That happens all the time. That's right. And then we always, the, the acronym FOMO. I mean, that's... Yes. We fear hear that of missing out. Everywhere, right? So it's always fear and it's always greed. Those are the two things that often spur the, the emotions. Um, it's interesting, the real estate question. I get mm. that one all the time because I do quite a bit of real estate and... I'm always telling people that FOMO and greed are like, you really got to watch out for those things. Mm. And you really, really got to bring up the spreadsheet, crunch the numbers and make uh, an informed decision. Mm-hmm. So you, besides real estate, in, in terms of investing, is that mostly what you're talking about? Like you said, uh, take risks, smart risks and invest like they're rich. So that could be a whole bunch of different things. So why don't we start at the beginning? Let's say I'm, I'm interested in doing this. What's my first step? 
The first step is recognizing that there's actually a roadmap that you can follow to help stack the odds in your favor. Mm-hmm. I call it the smart risk investing roadmap. Okay. And it comes from years of experience having worked in New York City, learned from some of the most brilliant self-made billionaires who started off with very little, mm-hmm. but ended up with a lot. Can you name names? I can't really name names, but I can say that uh, a lot of them shared some common characteristics right. whose um, lessons learned I tried to distill into some everyday lessons that people here and now can implement in their daily lives to make better investment decisions. Mm-hmm. So uh, part of that roadmap is starting from the sense of, okay, what is the purpose of this money? What do I want this money to achieve in my life? As okay. you pointed out, it could be the goal of buying that first house. Mm-hmm. It could be about reaching that point in your life where you can retire and live off the income from your investments instead of having to go to work every day and earn mm-hmm. that income. So that purpose is really what we start with to identify what are the key priorities that you want this money to en- enable, to liberate you from this need to have this day-to-day job. So to rely on the paycheck. That's right. So I guess you're you're talking about various different income streams. So you have your active income stream, which would be going out there, doing your job, getting paid every two weeks. Yep. And then uh, possibly various other passive income streams, which could supplement that. And hopefully, you know, the passive income streams become bigger than your your active income stream. And then you can, that's, I guess that's an optional work. You can choose not to work. That's right. Can you give some examples of what some of these billionaires did who started from humble beginnings to create those passive income streams? Sure. I guess one of the, the, the keys was that they learned this mindset that it's okay to fail and fail fast. Okay. A lot of us, I think, uh, hold back from taking financial risks because we're worried about loss. We're worried about not being able to afford retirement or afraid of losing money. Right. Let's just put it simply. So we end up staying too conservative with our investments. You know, we work hard to make the money in our job, mm-hmm. but then what do we do with it afterwards? It's literally put it in a bank account and let it grow and earn very little interest right. or keep it under the mattress is oftentimes what the default can be purely because people are not enough time or not enough interest or too busy to actually get that money working for them. So um, some of these folks who I worked with and, and learned with and studied under, they showed me that by learning to take risks at an early age and not be afraid of failure, okay. to, but, but more importantly, to pick yourself back up again and build that resilience, almost like this muscle that you're training to allow yourself to fail and try again, and by taking risks that ultimately stack the odds in your favor. So uh, I'm guessing a dumb risk, though. You said go <laughs> learn quickly and learn fast. Mm-hmm. So a dumb risk, though, would be taken. $1,000 going to the casino and losing it, that'd be a dumb risk. So let's say right. I had $1,000. Tell me about a smart risk. What's a smart way to think about that money? Right. Let's say you're a th- you have $1,000. You're a young guy coming out of school, out of university, and you're starting your first job. Well, I'd say you've got a long time horizon and an ability to have that money go up and down in the near term because you just want that money to grow. Mm-hmm. Then I would invest that in assets, perhaps in the even equity market, in things that can give you more upside uh, than downside over the long run. Okay. And that's the thing is that it's about separating the short-term uncomfortable feeling of that volatility perhaps in the value in the near term versus the payoff that you get by investing in something that has profits and growth over the long term. I guess it's also getting used to that volatility. Yes. So I know for my older clients, 
if there's like a little drop off correction it happens every year in the markets and the ones the seasoned investors they just brush it off this mm-hmm. is par for the course we've gone through this not a big deal even a big 2008 obviously they're concerned but they would handle it quite a bit better than some of the novice investors who've never actually been through it and maybe that shook them out and they're like once bitten twice shy they might not get back into the market so that's uh I, I, Let's go back to that $1,000, though, because I might have answered that question a little bit different. So if let's say it's your scenario, someone's coming out of college and they have the $1,000. Would you say that investing is the number one goal or would you look at other things that they could do with that $1,000 first? Well, of course, it always depends on that person's individual situation and what their priorities really are for that money. Again, going back to the purpose at the very beginning of that Smart Risk Investing Roadmap. But again, if their purpose is to grow that money and to being able to have a... um, you know, a larger nest egg that they can do something with, you know, five, six years down the road, perhaps, then they're going to need to have that money grow. Sitting there and just being liquid, available to cash out, to spend, perhaps, is something they'd like to do, but not necessarily a good risk from the standpoint of being able to actually achieve that goal a little few years down the road that's going to require a larger amount of capital. So what, what I'm hearing is opportunity cost, uh, the very bad, poor opportunity cost in a, in a bank account where you're earning maybe 1%, whereas inflation might be 2 or 3 So you're not growing it at all. You're actually losing it in terms of buying power. Um, what I was sort of getting at, uh, there's, there's, let's say someone had some debt or emergency fund or investing. If you would say a rule of thumb, which one would you tackle first with that $1,000? Well... You know, I think debt is not a bad thing to have as a young person just starting out. And that's also one of the lessons that we learned from a standpoint of those who are willing to take a bit of risk. Okay. I think that debt later on in life when, you know, you don't, you know, have uh, many assets to support it, that's a totally different thing. Mm. But debt, for example, to get an education can be one of the best types of debt to have, in my view, in order to uh, better educate and equip yourself with greater competence and confidence to really go out and build your career. So there's so. a distinct, you can distinguish between good debt and bad debt. That's right. So uh, could you give me other examples of good debt? Um, so a sense of good debt. Um, so for also for young people starting out or those who want to have perhaps some real estate mm-hmm. and buy their first home, a lot of folks are comfortable having a mortgage. Right. And again, that can give one an opportunity to actually own their own property or their own home, whether it's a condo, you know, a starter house, whatever it may be. And that may not be feasible without some debt at the very beginning. Almost always, right? Right? Or the help of the bank of mom and dad, depending on what the situation is, right? Nowadays, it's a combination of two in most cases, yeah. So, you know, I would characterize that as a good debt, you know, in terms of what we oftentimes come across when we work with folks who are uh, finding themselves in an uh, almost like a downward spiral of debt where they just can't seem to dig themselves out of it and they're tapping out on different credit cards or various different lines of credit is that they're using debt for consumption on a lifestyle basis. Right. And what I mean by that is they're backing up credit cards, the bills are too much, you know, they're spending on vacations and worrying about paying the bills later. And in an era of easy credit, they're able to get lines of credit to pay that off, but ultimately there's no real feasible way for them to ever pay those down unless mm-hmm. they earn more money or completely change their lifestyle. So that's again where we start to implement this smart risk investing roadmap to say, okay, what are our priorities here? And in that case, it may be just getting out of debt into a positive cash flow scenario. Mm-hmm. And that's where we start to instill some discipline 
And right. we look at things like an investment plan or a savings plan where we try to make it easy, make it automatic, get them on a track where they're just saving a certain amount of their paycheck every month automatically into their bank account or to their investment account. And it may feel a little bit painful at first because they're not having that excess funds in their cash account to spend every day. Right. But it starts, importantly, to build that discipline, that mm -hmm. same discipline that these wealthy folks in New York built over time as a mindset. Do you recommend actually having a budget and breaking down the expenditures for young or actually anybody? I do. You know, I actually find that first step of building a budget creates awareness. Mm -hmm. And that awareness sometimes is the shocking part. And I always say to clients, you know, that first step of awareness is sometimes the most important. Right. Because then you realize, wow, I didn't realize I was spending. In fact, I had a uh, client once when we went through this process. And these two were, you know, um, a 52-year-old couple. Mm -hmm. both with jobs, uh, educated folks, and we started doing some financial planning for retirement. And in this process of financial planning, we started to look at expenses mm -hmm. and what and uh, you know what where their credit cards were being used on. In the exercise, it came out that they were spending $20,000 a year on wine. Wow. <laughs> and they knew they liked their wine. I didn't but know didn't you had realize. Johnny Depp as a client. <laughs> And you know, it's it's uh, you know, we all had a good chuckle um, because they didn't realize that they were spending this much, but they also weren't willing to compromise uh, completely on mm -hmm. their you know nice bottle on a Friday evening after a long week of work. So we just kind of looked at things and made some shifts and realized they could probably get just as much joy out of spending ten thousand dollars. <laughs> a year on wine, then yep. 20. Yep. And guess what? We were able to top up their tax-free savings accounts and start to, you know, actually put some more money towards their savings and investments. Ah, it's, it's interesting <laughs> because like, I I just think of, I'm not a big wine drinker, but <laughs> I, I like steaks. And I, I have the same conversation with clients too, because they'll, they'll be spending a lot of money on wine or steaks or eating mm -hmm. out, whatever it is. But I, I, what I often said, just from my personal experience is, you know, the difference between a $5 steak and a $50 steak is quite a lot, I would say. Like yes. a $5 steak is not going to taste good. And right. a $50 steak is going to taste pretty good. Right. So generally, I end up with something in the middle. But the difference between that $50 steak and a $100 steak, I would say, is not that big. Right. So incrementally, it's not that big. So it's obviously better. Mm -hmm. But is, is it double the value? And often, like, questions like that, again, yes. you're like, this is how you can use your money. You're still going out with your family, your friends, and whatever. You're still enjoying that, that steak. You're having a great conversation. That's what's really important. But if you can do that and still have the exact same quality of life for the $50, why not just do that? Take that other $50 and set it aside for your other goals. Absolutely. Yeah. I like that concept a lot. In fact, we use that when we're talking about investing in the global markets. Right. You know, um, people oftentimes think, oh, you know what, I am not ready for investing because I'm worried about the viruses that are out there, global yeah. trade wars. Look at the markets. They go up and down and all there's volatility. Right. And that's where, again, maybe a slight shift in the mindset, you know, changing that perspective, which is one of the... Uh, the key guideposts on that investment roadmap we talk about, mm -hmm. changing that perspective can be healthy uh, because we actually can help people think about volatility as a good thing right. when it comes to investing. So uh, I'm guessing you're, you're saying like buying, selling high and buying low. Volatility allows you to do that. When when the markets are just going up, you're, you're buying high or when they're crashing, you often people sell low. Those are the emotional triggers that often cause people to derail their their 
end goals. Yeah. So uh, you spend a lot of time with your clients explaining that and uh, help holding their hands, we often say, and, sure. and nav- navigating through those volatilities. Because I'm like you. I'm on the yeah. same page. I, I, volatility is great. This is this is how we get things on sale. Right. Uh, and when I'm talking about things, it's you know good quality companies that I'm guessing are going to be paying these dividends, which will pay the client to give them the option to have a work optional life. Is that absolutely very quick summary <laughs> of maybe a one piece of your book. No, you're absolutely right, Mark. And that's the thing is that I like to say it's like learning to dance with volatility. Mm-hmm. You know, when we when we know it's going to happen, we know there's going to be, it's like life. There's going to be volatility in life. There's going to be volatility in the markets. We can then start to embrace it in a way that we use it to our client's advantage. Right. And I'll give you an example. So, you know, let's say, you know, I like to go shopping once in a while and mm-hmm. a friend of mine was eyeing this designer handbag. Mm-hmm. Okay. And she was looking at it, she picked out the color she wanted it in. She would go to the store, feel it. But these designer handbags rarely go on sale, right? right. You know, they got a big price tag. Well, let's just say that uh, this designer store had a big sale, 30% off everything in the store. Right. Okay. I asked her, would you go in there and go buy a pair of socks or would you finally get that handbag you always wanted and mm-hmm. get it for 30% off on this one day only sale? And that's kind of like the markets. Right. You know, most of the time things are expensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then you get these pullbacks, these panic-induced, volatile moments in time where the markets drop and everybody's running for the hills. Mm-hmm. What if we looked at it as an opportunity right. to pick up, like you said, some of the best quality companies on sale, mm-hmm. right? And they call the company's the exact same thing. That's what people don't realize. Like, just because people are panicking out there doesn't mean Starbucks is making selling less coffee or Costco. Like, I often tell people when people are pan- panicking or worried about the market, I was like, if you're worried, drive to Costco. And if, if, <laughs> if the parking lot's empty and the cash register, no one's at the cash register, then you should worry. But I can pretty much guarantee you it's going to be packed just like it always is, except for if you want to buy the stock, it's likely cheaper today. So that's that's the good thing. And that's that's a good way of uh, explaining things and keeping people on track. Um, if I remember correctly, it's been a while since I read your book, but uh, I did enjoy it. You're, you had five steps. Is that right? To your that's plan? Right. right? So the first one was sort of purpose and planning. What was the second step? So the first one was purpose. Purpose, And okay. identifying the priorities around what you want their money to do for they you. They were all P's, weren't they? That's right. They okay, all start with yeah, P's. Right. makes it a little easier for me to remember. Okay, good, good, good. good. <laughs> so um, then the second one is uh, people. Okay. And what I meant by people was really advocating for this idea of surrounding yourself with a circle of trust. Mm-hmm. Um, people who are subject matter experts, perhaps, in their lens of uh, expertise, for example, you know, could be, you know, a lawyer, accountant, you know, a trusted friend or a medical professional, you know, a wealth advisor, your spouse, Mm -hmm. people who all have your best interests in mind as well. And think of these people as your A-team, right? Right. Be willing to show your true um, goals and and expectations and even have a meeting with all of them together. Mm-hmm. And um, you and I both were part of this um, wonderful uh, credential called the Family Enterprise Advisor Program, right. yes. where we learned all about multidisciplinary sharing of ideas. Mm-hmm. And this model, I think, is really important in terms of ensuring the client success. So that's what really the people side of things are. Um, the third P is plan. Okay. And by plan, I meant having both a financial plan and an investment plan. A financial plan is really more about understanding the high-level concepts of what you want your money to achieve for you and what you need the money to do for you in mm-hmm. order to get there. 
like different scenarios, right? And mapping it out and actually having a written financial plan that maps it out. Right. And kind of gives you a really um, honest assessment of what you need to change or do the same in order to get there, right? The investment plan is more the implementation of what your money needs to do to make your financial plan a reality. And oftentimes they're two very different things. So that's the saving and just always be investing to grow it, to reach those things. Sure. Um, I know like the wealthy barber throws out like yes. 10% of your paycheck. Do you kind of agree with that percentage? Well, I think that can be a good place to start. But it also depends on what kind of lifestyle you want to have in retirement or in that work optional life. I have clients who um, love to travel, mm -hmm. right? And they're spending just as much as they did in retirement on their lifestyle now that they have the freedom and the time to go and travel than they did when they were working. Okay. So there used to be these old rules of thumb where, you know, you'll spend 60 or 70% of what you earned in retirement. Right. Um, I find that people are spending a lot more in retirement these days because they want the luxury of travel and all these other things, spending time with grandkids and things that they weren't able to do when they were busy running their business. And they're living a lot longer too. People are living a lot longer. So we generally plan for living to 90, 100, even sometimes longer than 100 if mm -hmm. there's longevity in the family. And I find that... It's like as soon as they retire, for a lot of people, it's like the first day of summer vacation. Like you got your plans, you, you know exactly what you want to do, and you do all the traveling, you get, you do all that stuff. It's great. You get then after a couple of years, you sort of get it out of your system. Right. And there's a bit of a lull in spending, and then it ramps up again, all because of like health issues and and right. whatnot. So there's always that constant need for money, mm -hmm. and uh, it goes back to I guess the question I often get is, um, retiring next year, I got to go to cash. Because I, I can't risk mm. another drop. Um, let's 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 do that. And I'll be. Mm. What do you think I said? Okay. Because well, I can I would, pretty much guess. What right. You right. Well, I probably share your sentiment, Mark. Is that you know I think that the the mix of assets that one has to have in retirement is very different than an all cash portfolio. Exactly. Because you got to make it last. You got to like make it thirty last. years. Or you something, still need right? growth, right? The same mm. way that you know a thirty year old's looking out at sixty. You know, a sixty year old now is looking out at ninety. Yeah. So we need to have that money continue to grow. So again, I think things like a diversified portfolio in some might involve some, you know, risk in assets like equities that are generating, like you pointed out, cash flow and dividends mm -hmm. that can be a tax efficient to help pay for those expenses. It could include some real estate. It could include some fixed income. It could include some alternatives. There's also, you know, a, a really um, more uh, uh, sophisticated way that one can look at a retirement portfolio than just simply being in cash. Yeah, because I, I mean, it's if you think about it, it's a bad risk. Mm -hmm. It's a terrible risk. Mm -hmm. You are guaranteed to lose, right. not become financially independent just because of inflation. Mm -hmm. You're not getting the interest rates that you need. Like it's not right. the '80s where you can get seven, eight, nine, ten percent, right? So it's a bad risk. So you, I guess, that goes back to your financial plan, your investment plan, which has that longevity to a hundred, and then maybe what we generally say is you keep a couple years worth of. Um, assets in cash, maybe mm -hmm. the supplement for your next couple of years, yeah. just in case there is a big drop, because it would really affect your plan if you happen to drop in those first years. But then after that, let it run, let it do its things and ebbs and flows and then right. stick to the plan, right? Right. I kind of like it using an analogy of, of being in a, in a boat. Okay. And you're in Vancouver and you want to get to Victoria and Victoria is retirement, okay? Mm -hmm. And you're in this boat and if you want to get there fast, Right, and you want to get there uh, right away so you can enjoy that retirement. You take a speedboat, right? Mm -hmm. But 
it could get pretty choppy when you hit those waves right in between the between Vancouver and Vancouver Island. And so you got to be prepared for a lot of choppiness along the way. Right. Right. And that's more of an equity portfolio. Mm-hmm. Versus if you're if you've got a you know a, a lot longer time horizon between when you need the money and where you are today, you can afford to you gotta take that slow kind of boat to Victoria, and it'll be a lot more smooth. But it'll take you a lot longer. Right. So, you know, trying to figure out what the happy medium is for clients. Or if you keep everything in cash, you never leave the port. You never leave the port. <laughs> and that's exactly right. So you don't get anywhere. That's the reality. And so it's helping to educate and provide clarity around these so that people have the empowered choice at today's point of view to be able to make smart decisions, mm-hmm. take smart risks. And in that moment where the volatility hits, you can remind them, okay, yes, we plan for this. And here are some of the safety nets we've built in so that they're not in a situation where you know cash flow is depleted or they just can't access their capital, but they've got safety nets through whether it's insurance or other sorts of you know emergency capital available to kind of smooth the ride along. Mm-hmm. Then it makes it much more of an enjoyable experience getting to that retirement. Yeah, see, what you just mentioned there, you say we plan for it. Yes. You can't avoid risk. You can't avoid these drops. You can't avoid, you know, anything that happens. There's something that happens every year, trade deals, whatever. But you can plan for them. You can navigate them. If you avoid them, again, you're overly analysis by paralysis. You're not moving anywhere, and you're probably going to lose your goals. So so P is a good one. I really like that one. Mm. What's the fourth P? Good one. So the fourth one is perspective. Okay. Perspective is all about mindset. You know, I've oftentimes come across clients and they have a particular bias one way or the other. Some are rock stars in their business, really aggressive, but when it comes to their own personal finance, they're super conservative, mm-hmm. right? And it's almost like this bias they didn't even realize they had. Again, keeping too much money in cash, perhaps, or just being too busy to even deal with it. And I can, so I can kind of see that though. If you yeah. if you do own your own business and it's doing well, you're like, I'm taking on. Yes. entrepreneurial risk over right. here. I'm perfectly fine with that, but I do want an offset over here. Mm. So, uh, okay, I'm curious to what, what do you do with the rock stars? Well, with those types of folks, I often say, you know, having a good, you know, um, professional advisor to work with who can be that person's advocate, trusted strategic advisor to make sure that their personal side of things is being looked after just with just as much care as their business side. Right. Right. That works really well hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And there's that mutual respect for each other's expertise as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, and they're used to that. And they're, they're used to that. They're used to yeah. hiring professionals to handle things. Because I right. mean, if, if they got all these integral parts of their business, they can't do everything. Right. So, okay. That makes sense. The challenge is when working with folks who believe that they know everything. Right. Or they're used to telling others what to do and they're not really so well accustomed to listening to others' right. advice. And so that's where we have to take a little bit more of a yeah. collaborative approach <laughs> yeah. to help tease that mindset towards more of a uh, best practices approach, right? So again, perspective. And that comes back to some of those wealthy folks who, you know, had the perspective of willingness to take t- risks, willingness to to fail and, and, and learn and have that almost no egos approach mm-hmm. to be able to realize, okay, maybe I do need help here. Right. Um, and a perspective to always be learning and getting better. And it's the same thing about the markets, right? And with investing, it's not like you just pick one stock and hope it goes up and that's the only thing you want to own. Mm-hmm. I have come across clients who own a portfolio of penny stocks that have gone nowhere mm-hmm. and they just had a hard time letting go. Yeah. Right. I got that too. Yep. And I purposely keep them. Yeah. And the reason I, they're, they're not worth much. They're just like maybe a couple hundred bucks because I, these are, they're a reminder not to do that again. So I purposely keep mm. them in my trading account. I call it my sandbox. That's sure. the one I'm allowed to play around with. And I keep them there 
just to keep me humble, saying, I don't know what I don't know. And these are examples of it. That's right. Yeah. So that perspective is really, it's about creating a healthy perspective around money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I tend to see money as an enabler, right? right? Something that is not about keeping score or, you know, a judgment tool, but rather an enabler to live the life that my clients always want to live, right? And so oftentimes it's about creating freedom. Mm-hmm. And at, at that stage of life, you know, when they're work optional, what used to be really important to them uh, changes. It shifts. It becomes more about, you know, fulfillment, giving back, perhaps that legacy piece, right? It takes a long time to get to a point where your work optional, mm-hmm. though, for most people, I would mm-hmm. say. So it, is it, what age group do you find for a lot of your clients, they have the option to, like, stop working and actually living off their, their various uh, passive streams of income? Right. So I would say it's a real it's a really big range. You know, for business owners, oftentimes there's a liquidity event where this business has sold or they sold a business and then they're in between and they're ready to start another one. So there could be earlier than, you know, the traditional, right. you know, uh, 60 plus. Um, you know, oftentimes the clients are in their late 60s or early 70s and they're work optional. Uh, you know, real estate has been, you know, very good to them over the years as well. And so they're at a point where they're... Um, you know, they're, they've sold their home downsized, and now they have a um, portfolio they can use for investments to generate cash flow for them. Sir, can you explain the difference between work optional and just retirement? I would say retirement has more of a um, a tinge towards um, le- passive, whereas work optional is much more about choice, about freedom, about an active lifestyle mm-hmm. where one chooses to do what they want and they might still be doing that old job that they were doing because they love to, right. but not because they have to. Okay. Oftentimes, I find that, that those first couple of years, and I'll give an example of a client that I worked with who was a, a family physician for 35 years. Mm-hmm. Those first couple of years of quote-unquote retirement can be really challenging because they're struggling with this idea of who am I? What right. is my purpose? What is my what do I do now? Right. <laughs> right. And she had all these patients who absolutely adored her and did not want her to retire. Mm-hmm. So it was, the toughest thing was for her to actually give up her medical license because mm-hmm. one, she felt that she might be letting them down. Right. Two, she felt that she didn't know what she would do with her time. And three, she was worried about outliving her capital. The financial fear started to perk up its ugly head. Right. So do you have those conversations like... Um uh, Mrs. Physician, Dr. Mm-hmm. Physician, um, yeah. this is, what are you going to do? Day one, you retire. What are you going to do? Mm. Do you have those types of conversations so that they know they got something to retire to? Sure. You know, we do spend a lot of time um, having discussions around what that work optional life will look like, right? Mm-hmm. Now, that becomes part of the financial plan, actually. Is that, oh, that's part of the P. Yeah, that's right. It becomes part of the well, financial plan. All P. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you got it right. <laughs> it becomes part of the plan where we can start illustrating, almost making it tangible, right. what it is that's going to excite her to get up every day. And for her, you know, it became out, came out that she always wanted to do more writing and okay. also some more gardening and travel. Travel mm-hmm. is usually, you know, mm-hmm. a very enticing one, right? And so once we started to... Um, almost make these tangible, she started to get excited about it, right? But there's still that push and pull, right? There's that little bit of a pullback towards what she knows, what she's used to. But that's where, um, you know, we come in and and help with um, talking through this process, leaning on some of the experience we've had with other clients who've gone through that very same type of emotional pull Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, sharing stories of how it's really become a, a positive for them. And that's where, you know, I'm happy today, you know, five years in and she's, 
never been happier. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just about stepping across that chasm of the unknown, right? And there, that's that's the challenge. Yeah, they're important conversations because I do know a lot of people who didn't really do that planning. Mm. They knew they wanted to retire. They knew they wanted to travel. But like a couple months later, they were they're idle mm. and they didn't know what to do. And they had to figure something out and they got they just didn't enjoy retirement. So they well, I mean, it's work opt optional. So right. they went back to work. But I, I, we we started thinking about that a lot more. We mm. we have those conversations quite a bit more sure. about like let's let's plan this out. This is another you know exact, exactly what you said. The extension of planning is not just financial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what's the fifth P? Fifth P is positive action. Okay. It's really about carrying that momentum forward and actually doing it. Mm-hmm. And that's where all of those other P's ahead of time kind of build the groundwork to be able to actually implement and take that step. Again, it's like anything in life, right? When it's a big decision, right? It can be scary to step ac- step across and do that and step outside one's comfort zone because all of what we know is behind us. It's so much easier just to stay where we were, right? Mm-hmm. But that positive action, again, it's almost like this step that one needs to take so that they know that the next time they're faced with an important decision, right? And that you know, decisions don't end once you're re- retired. You know, they continue. And when it comes up other priorities, for example, what to do with the wealth beyond your lifetime, right? Mm-hmm. But this all becomes a framework, a repeatable, systematic, disciplined framework to be able to make better decisions. Is it usually decisions that are made by, let's say it's a husband and wife or two spouses, is it cumulative? Like both of them are into the room making these decisions or do you find that maybe one spouse will want to do this, one spouse will do the other? They'll have completely different ideas of what retirement is and how do you sort of work through those dynamics? Right. Well, we do love working with couples and we always advocate for the couples to come to the meetings together with me and be able to be on the same page in a very kind of transparent manner to have these discussions. I always Mm -hmm. find that the outcomes are better in the long run when that happens. Sometimes there's resistance at first. Oftentimes one spouse is used to making the financial decisions and the other one just kind of goes along with it. And there can be a huge discrepancy in terms of the knowledge base, in terms of what one's familiar with and what the other person is familiar with. And so we work hard to try to get people on the same page, couples on the same page, you know, uh, and doesn't mean that one can't take the lead. No, right. one can certainly take the lead, but it's nice to have them both on the same page and there to be transparency around what the goals are. Yes, oftentimes there are different goals too, and that's what mm-hmm. keeps it interesting. And that's where in the discussion is really fun because we can sort of tease out what the real desires, expectations, understandings are and get alignment. Once you have alignment within the couple, then it's much, much easier to actually achieve success because what you don't want is them, you know, not to really share what they really feel, go home from the meeting and they start arguing (laughs) and everything you've worked for kind of falls apart. So we really advocate for couples in the meeting to come be a part of it, you know, absolutely participate and therefore we can create better outcomes. Yeah. There's this exercise that, that I do. It's, um, I get them on a Sunday morning or something like that. They have to go to opposite sides of their house (laughs) and they got to write a letter to the other person or to themselves, doesn't even matter, but what they think retirement's mm. gonna look like. And then they don't show the other person. And then I think we do it in the meeting, we take a look at it and we switch. And as often it's quite eye opening, mm. like what they really wanna do. Sure. Be, sometimes it's 100% exact and sometimes mm. it's very, very different. One wants to travel, one wants to stay home and garden. So then it's an interesting conversation after that. Right. But what it means is there's more discussions to be had between like three of us as well as the two of them. Right. 
Absolutely. It's a great exercise to do. And I'm still shocked to this day that there's a lot of couples who haven't had those conversations. And they're in their, you know, maybe late 50s, early 60s, sometimes in their 70s. And they're suddenly faced with these important decisions and haven't had that conversation. So, you know, I do, you know, recommend having those conversations as soon as they get together as a couple, really. And I work with some younger couples now who are used to running their money separately. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes there's a bit of resistance, right, coming together now that they're married and as a couple to share and, 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 and be, you know, having joint accounts or whatever it may be because they're so used to being independent, right? But yeah. that's partly where these good healthy habits can start from a, a young age as well. One of the things that I noticed with older couples mm. is, you know, it could be a, like a historically traditional where the man went to work and the woman stayed home. And um, the, the wife was very, very afraid of retirement, because she's not used to having her husband home all the time. He's used to being out there. So they they had some issues when he retired where they would basically spend too much time together. They're just <laughs> not used to it. So what, what happened was the wife got a job. Hmm. She went out there. She's like, okay, I, I love you, dear, but we can't be in this house all the time. You need some hobbies. I need some hobbies. And then they that's how they worked it out. So they're, you know, they're happy now. But that first year, she was saying, it was very trying. Hmm. But One of my favorite types of, um, of folks to work with are um, especially women who come into a windfall situation, mm-hmm. right? And I see that more and more these Way days. Way more. Yeah, women are going to be controlling a lot of the wealth going mm-hmm. forward, right? And that could be a windfall from the di- a divorce. It mm-hmm. could be a loss of a spouse. It could be from a sale of a business. But as you point out, the stats are showing that things are moving in that direction. And oftentimes I find that, um, you know, when there's a windfall situation, what I mean by that is all of a sudden there's a lot more money than there was before. Again, because it was either divorce, you know, a loss of a spouse, sale of a business. That's when, you know, people are feeling very um, perhaps happy about the money, but also very scared and vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And that's a really challenging place to be because, you know, sometimes it's a later stage in life and people can feel that they should have all the answers, right? right? But you get all sorts of you know, bright, shiny object ideas coming one's way on what they should do with that money. All of a sudden you have these new friends, mm-hmm. right? And that's where it's really important to have a relationship with a trusted strategic advisor. That's where that circle of trust can be really helpful because mm-hmm. even if you don't have a financial advisor, you can have someone who has your best interest in mind, who is a professional who can introduce you to a professional uh, financial advisor to help make good decisions and get you in that place of confidence right. to be able to make better choices and better decisions. Yeah, and you really need to rely on that circle because usually if it's a, a two spouses and one passes away, usually the assets go to the other spouse. But then you think about what happens when that spouse passes away. It could be completely different. So you might need to involve people to set up trusts or whatnot. That's right. Or what we're seeing often, even in people in their 80s, they're getting remarried. Yes. And then they got to protect their assets so it doesn't go to their new husband or new wife, that sort of thing. So there's a lot lot of planning that goes on in that later stages. It's it's interesting because the last podcast that we're on, um, Bernard from Manulife, we're talking about the whole concept of automation and robo-advisors. And he was specifically saying that they're great as tools. They're, They're very useful for a lot of things. But the one thing well, the, one of the things that they cannot do is that whole empathy and the whole planning. Like they cannot come up with these concepts to to go that step further when when the spouse passes away and how to set up the next step. So it's it's very 
very different from the last podcast that we did, where a lot of it was more technical stuff and everything mm-hmm. that you're talking about is very much the role of an advisor is a very important one mm-hmm. for all these other steps. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think at the end of the day, it's relationship and results. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a good uh, advisory relationship is able to achieve the results that the one wants. But it's not just about performance. It's right. about the trust and the understanding in the relationship. And throughout my career, that's been a very important lesson, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, you know, as I've learned from, again, some of the most successful uh, people that I've worked with, it's they have an uncanny ability to have strong relationships with good people. Right. And at the end of the day, when I look back, you know, I think that's what has been what I'm most grateful for are all the relationships with good people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a game changer for sure. Um, I'm going to go back a little bit. Mm. So I'm, I'm still curious when you, when you, this work optimal life, I'm not optimal, optional, optional life. And I'm still curious about the income streams. Mm. So, so far you've talked about sort of the market. Are, are those primarily the income streams you're talking about? Or are there other passive income streams they people consider, like these billionaires consider? Sure. There are multiple sources of passive income streams. And that's one of the things that we look for in terms of a way to diversify what those income streams look like so that you can have income streams taking place that aren't necessarily affected by the same risks as other income streams are taking place. Okay. Okay. So that's what diversity really is all about. Can you give me sort of an example of two income streams that are sort of non-correlated? Right. So a lot of, um, you know, folks that we come across have perhaps uh, the idea of rental income as an income stream, Mm -hmm. whether they've downsized their home and um, are renting out an apartment, for example, as an income stream. Okay, so that rent that they collect on a monthly basis would be one stream of income. Okay, um, one type of income stream we often advocate for is a dividend income stream. Okay, coming from holding investments in high quality, you know, publicly traded companies that pay a quarterly dividend that can, if it's in Canada, can be tax efficient as well. You know, it could mm-hmm. be an international company. Um, as well as having perhaps interest income coming in from, you know, some type of global bond portfolio where the interest on that bond is coming in on uh, a regular basis as well. Okay. And all of these income streams are affected by various different types of uh, risks out there, out there, okay? Risks and taxes. That's right. And so diversifying that income stream is a good thing. Also, we have clients who have sold a business and they have uh, the payment for that business is coming in as an income stream over time. We also have situations where there are investments in other types of, of whether it's you know commercial, diversified real estate properties, properties down in the states that are generating some cash flow from mm. those types of um, investments as well. So diversifying the income stream is one thing. You can also some folks will uh, have what is called an annuity. That's mm. another insurance type of product that pays a fixed amount, a guaranteed fixed amount of income. Um, again, that will be determined a lot by what your age is and what interest rates are. And when interest rates are low, it's not necessarily the highest amount of income, right? right? So in order to be able to generate the type of income stream that can reliably cover the expenses of somebody who has a fairly robust lifestyle, right, where they still like to travel, then we have to sometimes diversify that income stream in order to get enough. Hmm. What about like what's happening now for younger people is side hustles, gig economy, where they'll have their regular job, but they still want to make money on the side. How would that sort of play out, fit into your model? Yeah, I love the idea of the side hustle. You yeah, know, that's I got good. a bunch of them. So. 
I, I love some that pay and some that don't, right? You know, and then yeah. and what's fun is that that's what work optional life is all about, mm-hmm. right? In fact, I have a lot of clients who are in that stage of where they've retired from their professions or their business, um, but they're teaching fitness classes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a kind of win-win. They get to stay active and they're also having fun and getting paid a little bit, right? right. Or they're, um, you know, consulting, using their expertise in a knowledge-based f- field, where they were formerly perhaps an engineer or, or some sort of uh, professional, which has you know a very knowledge-based career, they're getting pulled into projects, right? That can be very well suited to you know summers off, you know, then they do like a, a three-month project where they're paying uh, paid a consultant fee, right? Consult- right? That's what I was going to say. They're yeah, basically consultants. Yep, and that can work really, really well. What or do- some that have turned into artists. Mm. And they have beautiful photography, you know, some of which we've purchased to put in our office, for example, that are now using their artistic talent in a way that actually generates revenue. Not because, again, they have to, you know, but it just does, it does certainly supplement their um, their work optional or retirement income. So the, the people that you've spoken to when you're in New York, um, those very wealthy people, those habits that they have mm-hmm. still translate to today's modern economy? And still for the the younger people, is yes, that right? Yes, yes. One uh, in particular taught me about looking for risks with an asymmetric payoff. What does that right. mean? It right. means for looking at when looking for opportunities where the upside is much bigger than the downside. Okay. And where the probability of success is much higher than the probability of failure. Right. And it sounds like common sense. But how often are we still attracted to, like you pointed out earlier, Mark, the casino where we know that the odds are against us mm-hmm. and we know that the probability of success is one in a million, but we still do it. Yeah. Right. So it's really about training one's own behavioral pattern towards accepting the risks that have the higher probability, higher magnitude of success versus those that don't. And so... Um, you know, folks will sometimes come across with investment ideas or are attracted to the bright, shiny object of mm-hmm. investment ideas that might be like, sound like a great idea. They heard about it from their friend mm-hmm. and that friend made big bucks on that, you know, flyer. Sure. You know, it used to be in the mining days and yeah. sometimes it shows up as, you know, maybe Bitcoin or yep. some other type of investment and they're attracted to that. Why? Okay. And that's where we help tease out, okay, what is it? And again, oftentimes it comes to the fear of missing out. Fear and greed, right? Right. But when it comes to actually a smart risk, right, if we were to repeat those types of investments over time, you know, the payoff is going to be, you know, negative. Maybe one, you know, a million pays off, but it has to pay off that much greater in order to make up for all those losses, right? So it's about reasonably separating out the emotion from more of this data-based or scientifically-based probabilistic approach. And that's what I find is maybe not as exciting and sexy, but it's actually, it works. Okay, and that's where we try to steer the investment plan, again, in a very disciplined investment strategy that stacks the odds in one's favor, right? Right. It's much more systematic, much more data-driven, almost called an evidence-based way of investing versus what's often in, shown in the movies, right, as that, hey, gunslinging, high-flying, you know, s- you know stock-picking, uh, guessing game, mm. right, with based around stories. Right. Right. And it's, again, it's about educating clients about the difference between the two. Right. And and helping people see that that a much more disciplined approach is one that's going to help them generate the outcomes and the results that they want on a more systematic, high probability fashion. Do you think it's a good exercise, though? Like, I, I get yeah. these clients coming all the time, you know, whatever it is, marijuana stocks, whatever. And and I, I do this stuff myself. But uh 
I always think it's, I don't often discourage them. I was like, okay, if you want to take whatever they can afford and buy that, that's fine. Because you could be right. I'm not saying that you're wrong, but I've heard stories like this a hundred times. And I'm just saying that 95% of the time it's going to crash and burn. So just going in, you know that because they often won't believe you mm-hmm. until that they actually feel that pain. So mm-hmm. I almost want them to feel that pain <laughs> and with small amounts of money yep. so that they know not to do it again. Because I felt that pain yep. and I still did it again yep. and I did it again and I did it again. It took me like about four times of like completely falling on my face before I learned those lessons. So now I, I don't mind some of my clients actually going through that process and crashing and burning just so that they learn those lessons. It's an expensive lesson, but they get that out of their system and then they can move on to that more prudent thing. Is that something you advocate or you think that's sort of a bad idea? Well, it, it all depends on the amount of money and the proportion that they're putting towards those types of investments, right? right. There's nothing against taking a high-risk approach if it's not going to affect uh, if they can afford the losses, right? right? So in, in that respect, yes, it, that is following a smart risk approach because you're actually limiting the amount of magnitude right. of the impact, right? And if it works out and they've discovered some systematic way of, you know, identifying, then yeah, we can add to that and take a bigger, you know, proportional approach over time. But absolutely, you know, you know, I especially for tax, tax-free savings accounts, it can be a great place to take a little bit more risk right. because it's a smaller amount of money and any big gains you have in there are completely tax-free. So you know, even better. So, uh, but it's not necessarily impacting the overall retirement portfolio. That's the key, right? Mm -hmm. Keep it small. And the other thing that I do is I do not let them do it with me. (laughs) Because <laughs> I know they're going to screw up and then those returns are going to detract from my overall portfolio. So it's going to look bad on a statement. So I was like, no, if you want to do that, open up your discount brokerage, do that. And don't even bother comparing the two. Like, I wish you well. I hope it works out. And if you do really good, if you make 200, 300% and I make 10 or whatever it is, great. Maybe trim those profits, take that and enjoy it. Spend it on something you re- regularly wouldn't, but keep it everything in perspective. Don't get overconfident. That's the one thing I say to him. Don't ever get cocky. That was my problem. Mm-hmm. I got cocky. I thought I could beat the system when I was when I had a good run for a year or so, only to be mm. hit back down to reality a year later sure. when things turned, because I do they do turn. Yep. But lessons learned, right? Absolutely. And so it makes you a better person. Right. Um anything else I should be asking you that you'd want to talk that you think our, our listeners would be interested in about you? Yeah, no, I think that there's a lot of great um um, books out there that, you know, well, you mentioned Wealthy Barber, you know, I think it's really great. I, I do give that book away a lot in mm-hmm. terms of mindset around personal finance and mm-hmm. how to think about, you know, building assets versus just chasing a high income. Right. And thinking about um, delayed gratification when it comes to, you know, money that you kind of fall into as an inheritance or what it may be. Um, teaching these lessons to, you know, our children as well about how to think long term Mm -hmm. and start building a strong foundation because I really believe, you know, a a sustainable growth is built upon a strong foundation, right? right? And so anything we can do to help empower these ideas amongst people, it really creates a better platform so that we can all live the highest contribution of our lives and help each other be more and more successful. So people are interested, you're welcome to visit our website and um, fill out a smart risk quiz. Uh, it's a free quiz. You can figure out how close you are to being ready for smart risks, and you have a chance to win a free book. Uh, it's www.smartriskinvesting.com. And from that website, I'm guessing you can purchase the book? Um, absolutely. It's available on Amazon, amazon.ca. And um, we're very um, grateful for the fact that our um, audience out there has 
um, received the book well, and it became an Amazon bestseller. Perfect. So awesome. for those who are interested, it's Smart Risk, Invest Like the Wealthy to, be, uh, to Achieve a Work-Optional Life. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. My Financial Life is a production of Alumni UBC. Thank you to our host, Mark Ting, partner with Foundation Wealth, and our guest, Miley Wong, Senior Portfolio Manager and Executive Vice President at Wellington Altus Private Wealth for participating in this episode. We would also like to thank the Vancouver Sun for sponsoring this episode. <laughs>